Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. You join me in a conversation with Dr. Fiona Kerr, a prominent thought leader in the fields of cognitive neuroscience and human connectivity. She combines her role as industry professor, neural and systems complexity at Adelaide University, with public speaking and consulting, both here in Australia and overseas. You're very welcome to the show, Fiona. I'm absolutely thrilled to be speaking with another Australian. I seem largely to be speaking to people from the US, so it's very nice to say that we do have some innovators even here in Australia. We do. I'm originally Scottish, but I've lived here for a long time. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, as you know, I'm Irish, so I, but I still consider myself Australian, I have to say. <laughs> so you really started from the arts, then you strayed into science and then realized that actually there's a lot in common between the arts and science. And you've married the two to create something, to create a career, which is very much about how do you then use technology to best effect amongst humans? Because at the end, you want humans to actually use the machines and to be the master of the machine rather than to be driven by the machine itself. Absolutely. Yes. And for us to understand at a really high level as well. Yeah how we shape each other and how technology shapes us and how we should be shaping technology. All right. So this is now becoming a delicious conversation. (laughs) And I'd like to add the source to it and say, give me a concrete example of something that you've worked on which illustrates these points. Okay. A beautiful example for me is I spent a couple of years working um, in health sciences on the neurophysiological impact of touch and eye gaze on healing and therapeutic relationship. So what we were doing was sitting there going, we know that there are times when if someone's slightly upset um, as a patient, five minutes with their trusted nurse or the, or the doctor makes a real difference physiologically. We just know that as human but we need to prove it. And and yes, we can prove it. So retinal lilac is one of those beautiful examples. So if if you come into the hospital and I'm your nurse, right from the start, there is a differentiation between how much we engage. So if I'm engaging with you and looking at you directly, then we start off spindle neurons, mirror neurons. We start off all sorts of synchronization, very early synchronization of socio-emotional parts of our brain. And we start these these kind of chemical changes in our bodies that starts to, a little bud, of, if you like, of trust between us. If I also take your hand to take your pulse, I can tell a lot from else from touching you. But the other thing that happens as soon as I touch you is we get something called C-fiber um, affect. So the C-fibers in our skin that are attenuated, uh, the signal is attenuated through emotion before it hits the brain. So warm touch creates another lovely cascade of these chemicals. So so long story short, we begin this connection, which is actually neurophysiological. And so whereas if if you come in and I'm looking at down at my iPad the whole time, putting in the information and I hardly have any direct gaze with you, and I clip a little thing on your finger and I don't even touch you, right from the beginning there is actually less physiological connectivity. And so some of my work is around how much of that changes because we do know things like if the first time I see you is over a screen like this, there will be parts of our brains that are not turning on until we actually directly interact with each other in the same space. 
So off you go, you have your op, you see me every now and then, maybe on shift a couple of times, and then something happens. Either you are worried or you might be in pain. So what will happen with your body is a number of changes, right? You'll get raised things like adrenaline, cortisol, you might down um, absorb your serotonin. And so you'll start your immune system kind of will struggle a little bit. There's, there's all sorts of changes that will occur in your body. What we tend to do is think, let's be very efficient. So we either give you drugs, that the hospital gives, gives you drugs, or if you get quite upset, there are all sorts of technological restraints. There are all sorts of things that can be done now that are very, very um, slick. But if you saw me for five minutes, because when you're under stress, humans naturally increase direct eye gaze because we want to up our oxytocin, then me sitting with you just for a few minutes because we've already got a bond, and especially maybe if I put my hand on your arm, then what starts to happen in your body is amazing. So parts of our brain start to synchronize. I change how your amygdala is, is firing. I can alter your general affect. I can calm you down. I can increase your serotonin uptake and your oxytocin. I can decrease your cortisol levels. I can do all of those things in a few minutes of direct human connectivity. So if you have that five minutes, you will heal better. And for the hospital's good, what it means is they've got a patient who will heal faster. They've got a nurse. One of the beautiful things about it is I get some of those similar chemicals because we have this beautiful feedback loop. That's where the, the complex systems come in. We've got this lovely feedback loop where if your oxytocin goes up, my oxytocin goes up. Um, so you've got a, a staff member who, providing they have the, uh, the agency to take that five minutes, then I feel better. I know that I've done something good, which is why we feel good when we do good for others. Um, and I'm not going to leave as much. The turnover is going to be better. And also the hospital hasn't paid for other solutions such as pharmaceuticals. And I've worked for some pharmaceutical companies. I think that, you know, there's, there's a time and place for drugs, absolutely. But what that means is we've got a win-win-win. So that's the time when the unique capacity of direct interaction neurophysiologically with another human has an effect which is more efficient and more effective than anything else. Fiona, this is heresy. This is absolute heresy. <laughs> because if you look at the way that, you know, we have been generating solutions for healthcare, we're talking about reducing the amount of time people spend with expensive clinicians. We're talking about telehealth. We're talking about computerizing as much of the experience as we possibly can. And in fact, you know, we, we're talking much more about the interaction that you and I are having on Skype than we're talking about interaction where you actually go in and you meet another human being who puts their fingers on you, heaven forbid, because somehow that bit of science has been disregarded. Now, has it been disregarded or is it just an inconvenient truth? It's a great question. Um, both. Uh, so the, I spent some of my time working with robotics companies and those sorts of people who are in this space. Um, and often it's not that they, you know, whether, it's, whether it's the family bot that they're making that's going to create less interaction between children and their parents, or it's the robot nurse, it's usually not that they actually want to increase the space between people and decrease connectivity and, you know, make, sorry, I don't know, psychopathic children. Um, it's much more that the neurophysiological lens is missing. So that's why 
I guess I created Neurotech because it's this little area or little area, it's this specific area of the neurophysiology of interaction that we just don't know enough about. So what we've got is we're being technologically driven and everybody loves the bright shiny. I love technology. I work in it too. But understanding when we use the tech, um, even in scale-up, so you're, you're talking about e-health, um, I now spend more and more of my time working on, yes, to, to, to scale, we need the app builders, we need those kind of things, but when do we need the human in that loop, in that process, because things like apps to change behaviour or to make you, you get patient compliance, there is no substitute for direct neural connectivity when it comes to the kinds of chemicals you need to pattern break in the brain to change a habit because it's an actual physical pattern that we hold our behavior in the brain and it's direct interaction with humans that creates the, the chemical capacity to break and change those bonds so it doesn't mean you don't use technology and apps for scale and for convenience and for making sure that we we remember things and that we do what we're supposed to do and that all those kind of things that enable behaviour change, but it doesn't create behaviour change in itself. And so some of my work um, here and, and when I was in Finland was is around what's the mix, you know, because we, don't, we actually know that, as you said, we're the expensive bit. There is a drive now to remove the reception areas out of clinics. In other words, to sanitize the place, make it much more kind of a place that you don't wait, you just go in and you're taken straight through to see the doctor or whatever else. And a lot of the experience for many patients now is like, uh, like booking an airline ticket. So you go online, you book your appointment and you know, you don't expect to have an interaction with another human being until you're actually sitting in front of that healthcare professional. The problem with that is if you look at the evidence for the role of the receptionist, the receptionist is probably the most important person you are going to meet in a doctor's clinic because he or she is going to greet you, he or she is going to make you feel welcome, he or she is going to make you feel safe in that environment, that alien clinical environment before you go into the next step. And of course, that, can, that has to continue, but that's another story. So are you saying that there, we cannot possibly do that, that we cannot possibly negate that experience uh, or overlook it and say, you don't need that. All you need is to go in, tap your name into an iPad and sit and wait, wait for the next bit. Yes, I am. And there's two main things to think about there. One is, Anyone who's giving any service or selling anything knows that the direct interaction and how comfortable you feel and how welcome you feel is a huge indicator of how loyal the person is going to be. So that's the first thing. It doesn't matter if it's a doctor's room or a restaurant or a bank. Um, so I also work with, you know, banks and those sort of places when they're technologizing. Where do you put the technology? Where don't you put the technology? Where do you have to have that lovely connectivity of the human? But the other thing to think about is a good rule of thumb, whether you're, you're trying to manage a team of people that are defied across a state or, a, or a, the world, or 
a group of people waiting to see you. One of the things that's interesting about humans is the good rule of thumb is when you have emotional elevation, that's when you need direct interaction. So it could be excitement and uh, creativity because there's a whole discussion we could have around how creative ideation works and how the different parts of your brain turn on more nimbly when you have other humans because we actually have physical synchronization of the brains. But when someone's coming to a doctor or a dentist or those sorts of things, there is a slight level often of raised stress especially if you are sick or if you're worried about something. Again, in that situation, we need a human. It's why we shouldn't use robots for angry customers or for lost children or (laughs) those sorts of things, which I've had to talk people out of doing, because they're the times when truly only a human will do. And it's because we have this, what, what I sometimes call this superpower, to connect directly because that's what we're wired to do and to either calm the person or to engage in that that excitement and, you know, go to the next level of either creativity or happiness about something. It's why giving good news is lovely, but also connecting when someone's um, potentially stressed is really critical for those people to, to gain control of their affect and to take actually good or bad news better. So you're absolutely right. I'm reminded of the time that uh, I was walking down Collins Street, and I don't know how well you know Melbourne, but Collins Street is the high-end shopping area of uh, of Melbourne. And my wife and I walked into a very high-end shop. So this was a designer shop. And I went and sat in the husband's chair while my wife <laughs> peered around all the, the various very expensive garments that were hanging in what looked like somebody's closet. So they set it up in that kind of way. And I noticed that there was a chap watching me from the side of the room. And he noticed that I was sniffing a little bit. So it was quite cold and I had a runny nose. The man immediately came forward with a a box of tissues and said, oh, would you like a glass of water while you wait for your wife? And it just changed the experience completely. And yet here we are in medicine, not seeing it in that way at all. We see it as an almost inconvenience to have that person peering at you from the corner of the room. They'd much rather you sat down, took your ticket, and then when the time came, walked in and bought your whatever uh, service you required and left. Mm, well, but, but except the patient wouldn't. So what's interesting is, is you know, who are we asking and who is this for? And in fact, we were having this discussion this morning here um, in the Samri building. So um, that's the Medical Health Research Institute. So where we were going was, all right, so family practice um, and practices now where you can walk in, take the ticket you don't know. And then the, the technologization of the, you know, Google doctor and depression and using robots for depression or chatbots. And it gets very complex. But where you what's interesting is if you if you walk back from that and say, okay, so is it that it would be better to have the Google robot as the first level and then they could refer you to something like a, a psychologist if you needed it or a, you know, whatever. Um, or is it that if you go into your practice where you put your button in and you've only got two minutes for this person who's seeing the doctor who's you know got two to five minutes for everybody, which means that they're almost having to – and they have to put everything into the computer and not look at you. They're almost in that same situation. And the amount of doctors that talk to me that you know hate this, compared to the family doctor 
who they they build differently, they have a relationship with you. And and what that does sometimes is if you are just starting down a situation of either feeling uncomfortable at something or anxious about something and that's a trusted other, then I've been in a situation a couple of times with my own doctor where what he's done, you know, because we, he's been my doctor for over 30 years and there have definitely been a couple of times, as there is in everyone's life, where I've just sat there in the end in tears and he's just sat there with his hand on my arm and that was what I needed. So is it that when you have that family doctor that can take that time, that knows you, you don't get the referral, you don't have to go, you don't become medicalised in that way because what you actually need is another safe pair of hands that's neutral because it's not your family that you can believe in and is is technically proficient but also cares about you because you have this lovely relationship with them where you trust them. And it gets into work around hope as well. There's fascinating work in hope. And hope's not fluffy. Hope changes your neurophysiology. Hope changes morbidity, mortality rates. It changes your capacity to deal with cancer. It changes so many things. And there's a lovely study right now on scribes in doctor's surgeries and in hospitals. So a couple of them are actually going back to having the doctor be able to not have to type into anything, but just interact directly face-to-face with the patient. And a scribe is behind you writing everything down. And they, it's more efficient. Guess what? They get through more patients because they don't have this juggling act of the, either the one finger typing or the having to spend time trying to have the quality, you know, face-to-face contact and get information into this system. But the other thing is the patient reveals different information when you have a direct interaction. And the, the doctor, the fascinating thing about complex problem solving is when you directly interact with your patient face-to-face, It changes your neural pathways. Empathy changes your neural pathways around how much information you can pick up and what your brain does with it. So we get better as practitioners in problem solving. It's why a mother knows their child is sick the day before the doctor's results do, you know, because you pick up these tiny little minute signals. And that's the kind of effect that you have when you allow that direct interaction that's really active listening and looking and connecting because our brains synchronize. We can watch it. If I was to put caps on both of you, I would watch you synchronizing. What you're saying very much resonates with many of our other guests. So Ron Epstein on mindfulness and Steve Treziak, who's the author of Compassionomics. I don't know whether you've heard the book Compassionomics. And he says that, you know, 40 seconds of compassion, simply connecting with somebody changes the outcome for that patient. But more importantly, exactly what you're saying, it changes the outcome for you. It reduces the risk of burnout in you as a healthcare professional. And this is very much speaking to some of the themes of our uh, speakers and the themes of this journal, which is what's the smallest thing that you can do without having to change the, uh, you know, Medicare rebate policy or any other healthcare policy for that matter. Not that that's not important, but what can you do as a healthcare professional that will make a difference to patients? And you seem to be saying, touch the patient, look at the patient, make sure that there's a human being in front of that patient when they are distressed at the earliest possible opportunity that they make contact with your service. Yes. So understand the power of 
direct interaction, presence, direct, positive, warm interaction. It doesn't mean that you're, you're only giving them good news. You can be giving them bad news. But if you're connecting well, then because you synchronize parts of the brain strongly when you have that trust process, the capacity, you're actually physiologically altering the amygdala area, which then changes how their parasympathetic, sympathetic, and autonomic nervous system are actually working and their HPA axis. It gets, it's beautifully technical what happens. And you can strengthen their capacity to deal with bad news as well because their general affect is, you know, is calmed. And so you have this, what I call superpower, to be able to let them deal with whatever comes and also to pattern break and change behaviour. So a big part of patient compliance is them actually connecting with you directly and getting a chemical change in their brains and starting that path of a change in habit. And if you don't ever have connection of human beings, you actually don't get it. It doesn't matter how much technology and how many apps we throw at that. It's a waste of money in the end. It's why they don't stick. The most exciting thing, I think, uh, about our conversation, Fiona, and the conversations that I'm having is that finally, finally, we're beginning to see the science behind the art, the science that says there is actually a physiological, biochemical reason why you need to do it this way. Things that, you know, people... Uh, certainly the people who trained me in medicine and and generations before me in particular uh, were saying loudly that this is about, you know, always touch the patient, always wait before you, and then hear what they have to say before you interrupt them. All of these kind of things that are regarded as nice to do in the last few years, but not really necessary in this, for the sake of efficiency. Yes, and, and it's actually very efficient because once you get that connectivity and that synchronization, we are, well, our brain speeds up. It gets very nimble. And the connection means, as, as we know, once you've got, because human systems communicate sort of laterally along relational lines, if you want to get technical, you know, sort of in that way, then it speeds up really well. It's extremely efficient because once you've got that connection, there's so much you don't need to say and do. I'm thinking about another small experiment with you talking about examples. So I've, I've got a really good friend here who's um, in the Royal Adelaide, who's the head of um, cardiothoracic surgery. And he's a, a brilliant guy who's come out of um, South Africa and Saudi and had a, an amazing background of, um, you know, creating a brand new way of treating a, a heart condition. And so he had a hospital um, out there where he instigated something called the cardiac shuffle. And that was that he would get his patients up the day after surgery, pretty, you know, pretty full on surgery. And they would get together as a group and they would have music on, and they would just shuffle around. They've still got their drips and everything together in a little group. And he knew that that helped. He knew that that got them going. And it's not just that they're mobile, mobilising, because we know we have to get them up. It's actually the stuff around the, the music, which does all sorts of beautiful things to your brain through, you know, aestheticism and, and, and memory, but also it's being together because we resonate chemicals when we're in the same space. So he's, he was doing it here and then it was stopped because it was risk. And then he's got it going again. And he said, oh, I don't know how long for. 
I just know that it helps. And I said, okay, they've already got a drip in. Yes. All right. So it wouldn't be invasive if we actually start, if, if I can take some blood and I can do some <laughs> some analyses of oxytocin, of, you know, a number of these things that even help. We know that oxytocin helps the endocrine system, which is part of your immune system, you know, all of those lovely kind of connective processes. So what if we could prove that the cardiac shuffle was actually good for the patients and it was therefore good for the hospital. And he went, you're on. So we were right now going through um, the, the grant process in the Royal Adelaide. The people that oversee those grants are really you know, keen on this. It's a wonderful little test because it's not too hard. We've already got people they're already, and they're already capitalised. So it's that sort of thing which, thinking a bit laterally, gives us an, a really lovely, rich, um, amount of information that technology allows you to look at. So it's not that, that you don't use tech. I use tech all the time, but we use it to look at human-centric issues or possibilities or options. Um, and so then that's a wonderful quality partnership. Fiona, any last thoughts as we wind up? Okay. I think that we need to to ensure. It, it, it can become very complex. So I'm I also advise the steering committee on AI in, in Finland. We, there's a really wide view of how you build, you know, a, a sort of a quality future, partnering with technology. It can also be quite simple. When you ask a quality question around sort of a human-centric, you know, problem, and especially in the medical sphere, that's probably where technology shines, you know. So how, how do I do a better heart patch? How do I do whatever it is? Then technology is truly awesome because we put our collective minds and hearts behind designing wonderful things. If we ask a question which is kind of quantity-based and not human-centric, it tends to be how can I benefit from this or profit for that, especially at the cost of others then again, technology is awesome at doing that. And I think what we need to remember is we step back and we, we don't say, how can you use the bright, shiny thing, which is now being sold to us as efficient, it, to flip it the other way and say, you know, what, what's the opportunity here or what's the problem? And then what's the role of people in it and of technology in it? And then you say, okay, so how and when and in what way do we combine? If we combine them, do we? what do we do with both? And then I think we have a much better outcome. And it empowers people to understand that they're not being driven by every new technological change, but they can take huge advantage of it. And we also change what we design and we change what we use because we understand the unique properties of humans and the capacities of technology to, you know, to just take us where we never thought we could go. And we should end up with a really good solution. Fiona Care, we are honoured. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>